Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. There's fury in rural Ireland after an EPA report suggests cutting livestock by 30% to hit our climate targets by 2050. Is a career with the Gardaí becoming unattractive? A new report says there is a decrease in Garda personnel with more than 40 stations with no permanent Garda attached to them. There simply aren't enough Gardaí uh, to adequately police some areas despite the very best efforts of those working on the front line. And health insurance is on the rise. Is it now becoming a luxury in this cost of living crisis? Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV and have your say in our nightly interactive poll. begin tonight with the climate crisis and the thorny issue over who takes the pain to sort it out. There's been uproar from farmers and rural TDs after the Environmental Protection Agency research suggested a suite of ideas to hit our climate targets. The measures which were published in the Daily Mail after a Freedom of Information request include reducing its livestock numbers by 30%, quadrupling its forestry targets and re-wetting 90% of reclaimed land. Well, a reminder about our nightly live interactive poll, which allows you to have your say. Tonight, we're asking you about this issue. Should we consider culling some of our national herd to help reach our climate targets? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code on screen and we'll bring you the poll results a little later in the programme. Well, joining me now to discuss this very emotive issue is Neil Richmond, Minister of State at the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Independent TD, Michael Fitzmaurice, Environmental Journalist, John Gibbons, and I'm joined on Skype by Katrina Morrissey, News Editor of the Farmers' Journal. You're all very welcome to the programme. And Katrina, I want to start with you. Uh, bring me through, I suppose, the task that was set to the EPA. Thanks, Kieran. Yeah, so this report, I suppose, was commissioned by the EPA. It's funded by the Department of Agriculture and the Department of the Environment. And it looks at, uh, it was conducted then by the Atlantic Technical University uh, researchers there, in particular, James Warren and, and Eamon Hawley. So what the report's I suppose, specification was to look at the existing land use, the existing technology and how Ireland is set up currently as regards land use, and then look at how, if Ireland was to reach a net zero carbon target by 2050, what would be required in the agriculture, forestry and other land use sector. And as you said, it would require, the authors found, they looked at a number of scenarios, 
but the scenario that they come up with that would hit this target would require a 30% cut in livestock numbers, 300,000 hectares of peak land to be re-wetted, and that's the equivalent of 90% of uh, peak land that is currently farmed, and then 875,000 hectares of forestry. And just for context, that would be 400 times the amount of forestry that were planted in Ireland last year. So that was what the report was uh, commissioned to do, to look at what is the evidence there at the moment, what would be required to get to this net zero carbon land use target by 2050. Just to be clear, um, Katrina, they were clear in this report that the measures that you outlined, they all need to be done in unison. They said picking an individual measure like forestation, for example, would mean we'd fall short of this carbon neutral target by 2050. Yes, and even more so, if you went further in forestry, you might need to do less on livestock. If you went further on cutting livestock, you might need to do less forestry. But this was the, the balance, I think, across the different elements that they said was the scenario that was uh, not the easiest, but it's the one that they came up with that hit that target. And there were very few scenarios that they looked at that would reach the net carbon zero by 2050. Talk to me about the reaction among uh, rural communities and the agriculture sector. Yeah, I think the reaction is not surprising because this report is a very stark scenario to be presented with. And the drawback of it is that this scenario, this study has been presented with absolutely no uh, socioeconomic study to accompany it. Um, and I met the report authors today and they said that that is part of what the EPA is supposed to be pulling together, that this is only one of a number of reports and one of the other reports is a socioeconomic report. Um, I think farmers and rural dwellers are likely to be shocked by anything that says 30% of the livestock in the country uh, should or would go. Also shocked by the amount of, you know, the forestry. It's, it's a sweeping, huge, huge change to existing land use. OK, let me put that to our panel. Um, John Gibbons, I'm going to start with you because one of the farming bodies today said, look, there is goodwill there. There is an acknowledgement within the agriculture you know, sector that change is underway and is necessary. But the findings in this report, the language they used was extreme, radical, vicious, and in the words of Michael Fitzmaurice, who's sitting next to you, it amounted to the ethnic cleansing of agriculture communities. What do you say to that? OK, I think, first of all, it's pretty clear that the changes that are going to be required for all of us, by the way, not just agriculture, across, across all facets of Irish society and our economy, these changes are significant and they're going to roll out over time. What I think the context that's missing to this discussion, if I might say so far, is the time frame. We're not talking about 2030 here, we're talking about 2050. So the time horizon here is in fact close to 30 years. So before we all start uh, throwing our hats in the air and saying it's, it's a disaster, we can't do it, many things change over a 20, 20 and 30 year period. If you cast your mind back to 20, 30 years ago, in our agricultural profile was quite different to what it is today. So change happens Anyhow, change happens. And let me give you a small example, Kira. Between 10, 2010 and 2020, agricultural okay. emissions increased by 20% because of a policy shift driven by a combination of political decisions uh, backed up by the agricultural industry pushing a particular direction. Now, that was a radical change. 
But that didn't mean that, that there's nowhere back from that. The problem, of course, with that change, oh. that bad policy change is it's put us in a much worse position okay. than we should be. OK, but the EPA have said there is a road back from this and they've outlined what it is, which is this 30% cull to um, livestock numbers, 90% re-wetting of you know, peatlands that are being reclaimed. They, they've, they've pointed out what needs to be done yep. according to the information that's available to them now and, I suppose, projected advancements in technology. This is what needs to be done. And rural TDs and uh, rural um, farming lobbies are saying it's radical. It's extreme. It's going to lead to a rural uprising. OK, let's take a, what we call a 30% cull. I don't like the use of the word cull, by the way, because it's, I think it's kind of loaded. But let's just say a 30% reduction in our, in our livestock loading. Now, that's over almost a 30-year time frame. So when you break okay, it so down like that... OK, so just to be clear, though, John, do you, think, do you agree with the EP? This is what's necessary. Well, it, this is the minimum that is necessary. In fact, you know, in fact, if anything, they're lowballing right across here. And I would, if I might, come back here as well to one thing that you said in your introduction about Michael's comments on this, the ethnic cleansing thing. Now, just for, for reference, ethnic cleansing, the definition of it is the, the mass expulsion or killing of members of one ethnic or religious group. It comes to mind Srebrenica in, in Yugoslavia or indeed Mariupol right now. And I would ask Michael, maybe right here on air, Here's an opportunity to retract. We do not need that type of inflammatory language in our discussions, Michael. You as a public representative, we as journalists, we need to be very temperate. There are right-wing people out there on the streets causing trouble. We need to be super careful of the type of language that we use because when you suggest ethnic cleansing, there are people out there who will believe they're under some kind of violent uh, assault and may react accordingly. So maybe, Michael, you might like to clarify okay. that. Michael? Well, first of all, John, I will never um, apologise to you or your like, first of all. What I've said, I'll stand over it. Um, and what I mean by that, uh, Kira, is from where you're from in Donegal, right down to the bottom of Kerry, and indeed parts of Cork, right out to the Midlands and Offaly. We're not talking about all of Ireland. There's none of this going to happen in the Golden Vale. There's none of this going to happen in the, in the plains of Kildare or in the hills of Mead. What you are looking at is people, family farms, small family farms. Mm -hmm. Ironically enough, the family farms that most of them are in organic production at the moment being taken out of commission. You are looking at, say, you talk about 90% of a farm of some of peatland being um, basically put back and re-wetted. Okay. It, it could be 100% of somebody's okay. farm. Okay, but and Michael we will Fitzmaurice... Not, and I'll, I'll no, I'm, just, sorry, I'm just going to cut across you there. The use of the phrase ethnic cleansing. Yeah, and it is. It's getting you stand rid, over it's that. You don't rid, think that language getting, is inflammatory yes. and irresponsible? Yeah, and it's not inflammatory. It's the fact that we're getting rid of family farms in the West, Northwest, Southwest and the Midlands if this is going ahead. And in my opinion, it won't be tolerated because... What we have to Are remember... Are you scaremongering No, I'm not, bit, I'm not scaremongering. Well, I didn't write the report. They wrote it. What I, yeah, but what, you're, you're saying it's wipeout for farms. But what I am... I'll be very clear on this. Where is the, the reclaimed peatland? It's in the areas I've outlined. Where is the areas where there be... You're not going to be buying land at 20,000 an acre below on the Golden Vale. You'll be buying it in Donegal, okay. parts of Galway, and places like that where it's cheaper. You are looking at a third... 25% to be exact, okay. 28% of lands in this country, agricultural land at the moment, being taken out of production. Okay. And do you know but what's just, just to the point, sorry, just, about, just, yeah, sorry, Michael, just, just the point that John said, that politicians, media, everybody involved in this difficult conversation, they need to be responsible about the language yeah, that being, they use. I, I, I'm being you you I stand over what I said and I will not back from it. Okay, Neil Richmond. 
Yeah, I think it's important just to draw back to what this is. This is a scientific report that's part of a wider process that the go government is ongoing in terms of land usage. We have very serious issues when it comes to the climate emergency. We have very clear responsibilities that are law. We have targets that we simply have to meet in every sector, not just agriculture, but um, residential house building, commercial house building, and we have to throw everything at it. But we have to do it crucially in a manner that is balanced. It's balanced in terms of our economic commitments and crucially okay. our social commitments. And as you pointed out, this report does, hasn't got the accompanying socio-economic report. And what the government's responsibility is, is to bring people on board. It's not to divide people, it's bring the, the okay. family farm communities that Michael's referenced in the northwest, but also um, the large home builders and the individuals to okay. say this is what we can do and this is what we need to do okay. because and we I, have these commitments by 2030. I accept that there is a separate socio-economic report which the government will have to take into consideration. But if we want to reach that net zero figure by 2050, the EPA have looked at this and said, give or take a couple of you know, figures or stats here, this is what you need to do. And if you don't do it, we're not reaching that target. End of. They've looked at all the options. They've seen if there's easier models, if there's technological solutions. And they're saying, no, this is what you need to do. You've mentioned the climate action plan there. You mentioned we have these legally bar, you know, binding targets. Do you have what it takes to push through these really, you know, unpopular decisions in rural Ireland to reach those targets? Well, again, we go back to this report isn't the only piece of information that's being presented to the government. There's been engagements with over 250 submissions from individuals, from groups across the country, expert groups of all manner. They will all feed into the ongoing plan, much of which has started in terms of when it comes to residential, the deep okay. retrofitting, and already okay, under Michael Creed as Minister I, for Agriculture. I know there'll be rural viewers watching this evening. I know there'll be farming mm. families watching this evening. And they'll say, you know what, that's all well and good. But I want an assurance now from a minister that when it comes to culling the livestock in this country, it won't have to happen. End of. Can you categorically give that assurance to people? I have no desire to see us having to reduce the herd or cull the herd, but we are in a review process, so I can't give that commitment, even though it is my political desire not to see it happen. And I think we can work out a solution where that isn't possible, but it requires everyone coming together not and working through all the sectors. Okay, well, I want to go back to, to um, Katrina on that. And Neil Richmond said, look, we don't want to, we want to find another option here, another solution that won't involve, you know, what's been laid out in this report. But surely the authors looked at the other options. Well, I suppose what's important is what, what this report suggests is a blunt instrument over a, a lengthy period of time, as, as John has said. But there is... An attrition there in cattle numbers in the country already underway. There's a natural attrition there, which will take a certain number of livestock out. But I suppose what also is not captured in this report is that future developments, so the technological developments, what the authors looked at was the evidence that was based, and they particularly went in kind of the first six months of 2022. Um, there is a possibility that we could get you know, these silver bullets solutions. Um, research is ongoing into you know, methane, reduce, methane reducing feed additives and other uh, options that could give huge technological differences I, to the report. But you do mention there that there's sort of this natural attrition, but isn't the dairy herds numbers, aren't they still expanding year on year? They have been expanding, yeah, and generally there was a big burst immediately after quotas were dropped in the country. Suckler herd is that natural decline is about 3%. So, yes, there has been a big expansion on the dairy side, but that's actually slowing down because that was a huge burst of 
what I'd call kind of pent-up expansion that farmers would have done over the previous decade or 15 years, except quotas prevented them okay. for it. So that level of expansion is not going to continue in the future. OK, I just want to go to John here, because there is a real difficulty here, isn't there, for the agriculture, for the farming community in particular, because there were expansionist policies brought in by this government that they followed that allowed them to expand their herd. There's a lot of work that's gone into reclaiming peatlands in this country. You know, it's blood, sweat and tears of farming families out there to make this land viable. Now you're being told to re-wet it. it. It's not easy. And perhaps we here, not in the industry, not living in rural Ireland, John Gibbons, we don't understand the ask of rural communities. Yeah, I think the changes, as I, as I said in, in my opening comments, the changes that are required are required of all of us across all sectors. Farming hasn't been asked to over-deliver, over-perform. In fact, in the 2030 plan, it has the least ambitious targets, the 25% targets. I think that's important to say. You also mentioned about the natural attrition, which I think is correct. But for example, the Food Vision Commi Committee, which again is a government committee, mm -hmm. they proposed an exit scheme for suckler farmers, and 50% of farmers surveyed by the farmers journal said that they were interested mm. in taking part in either reducing the numbers or exiting. And the point here, Kira, is that that was opposed by the meat factories and by the IFA and Charlie McConnell went with them rather than with the small farmers, people okay. that Michael is referring to, who want. Many of them are older and smaller. And by the way, many of these beef operations are basically underwater okay. financially. They're way underwater. Are, are you, you concerned, them... John, are you concerned when you hear uh, Neil Richmond here and maybe other Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael politicians that they are maybe at odds with some of the green agenda, that they don't have what it takes to push this through because uh, I heard it described as kryptonite in rural Ireland. This is a vote loser for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I take a very, a very simple view on this. I think a future that is sustainable, much more organic, that we move towards a horticultural-based food production system. In other words, food for humans. That's really where we need to get to, to improve our food sustainability okay. and, and security in Ireland. The politicians, the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael politicians, we're going to assume the Greens have, can push this through, given how unpopular a lot of this is? I think so. And I think if we can avoid the kind of scaremongering that we've, we've alluded to earlier and the kind of loose language, I think most politicians are on board. They understand that we've got to get there. And they know there's going to be a lot of kicking and screaming along the way. But I think it's important that we understand we're we're not doing this for the crack. We're doing this because these climate targets are absolutely essential. And it's yeah. really important okay. to add, uh, Kira, that without this, it isn't that we will be metaphorically underwater, it's we will be yeah. physically underwater in rural Ireland. Do you accept that? Do you accept, Michael Smurfs, the all, threat that is here from first, climate change? First of all, uh, I think a few things need to be clarified. John talked about organic. The mo the, in the area that we talk about, the West, Northwest and the Southwest, is 94% um, of all organic farming is going on it. So we're going to wipe that. Second of all, Kira, it's not just about the farmer. It's about the shopkeeper down the road. It's about the school down the road. It's about the local GA club. It's about a community, what we call a community that a lot of people mightn't understand. Thirdly, um, I think it should be realised that there is culling going on at the moment for the simple reason the new banding on the dairy sector is the culling of the herd because the farmers will need more land. Fourthly, I think that, you know, as farmers here in this country are put through... Um, say, different things to do in the line of what's being proposed at the moment. Ironically enough, and, you know, I believe there's the one world uh, in, the, in, in the air we breathe, that um, Brazil is increasing their herd by 
0.9 million cattle. So, so, what, so you... what we're doing is we are going to we're looking at taking communities out, taking farming families out, leaving basically areas desolate, and at the same time we are going to move all that industry to another part of the world. And just to tick a box for the EU, we'll bring it back uh, by both. No, we'll okay, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it back. Well, that's what's yes, happening. No, 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 because that's what's in that, so that what happens. You're saying is that we're destroying. We are destroying what no, you're saying is rural Ireland. For yeah. nothing, because yeah. somebody else yeah. will do it elsewhere. Somebody else is going to produce it. Saying. Neil well, that's a, it's a really easy argument. And actually, Michael, I agree well, with an awful lot of what you're saying. But the thing is, you're talking about the expansion of the Brazilian herd, which is under the previous Brazilian yeah. political administration. It will they go changed ahead. the administration. Yeah, they've changed the policy. Ahead, you know. No, no, but you're... They've changed the policy, and then you say it's all at the will of the EU. That's a complete nonsense because the EU has very clear obligations under trade deals. But, that they'll only do them with people who meet the same climate agreement. That was brought in, and it was a key part of recent agreements. So you've taken outdated data there, Michael, and I don't know why you needed to Niall. do that because right. you have a very valid argument. That I agree with a lot with that. And my name's Neil, not Niall. Niall. So let's put it forward Niall. like that. The bottom line on it is, other countries will produce the goods. Let us not cut ourselves. The EU seems yeah, to be gone into. The EU seems to be gone into. Where they will turn round and they will import the goods. Are we not importing at the moment lamb from New Zealand, lamb from Australia? We are leaving the Irish farmers at the moment here. How much lamb? 20 euro, how much lamb? 20 euro, how much, okay. hold on, 20 lamb? euro a lamb. They're all protesting at the lamb moment. How much is imported you, from New Zealand okay, okay, into Ireland at the moment? And what are the conditions? I am talking about into Europe where we produce our own. Okay, sorry, sorry, lads, we each other. We're not going to hear anything. Michael, back to you. What do we need to do then well, to the first, reach these the first, targets, the first, the first, to reach this 25% yeah. target? Uh, the given first, the fact, this was no, just yeah. let me finish my question, Michael, given the fact that there's a lot of livestock farmers themselves, I've seen them in national media, who admit we can't get yeah. to the 25%, never mind the 50% the figure, the, the, without touching the, the hair. That's thing, what they say themselves. The first thing that needs to be done, Kira, is we need accurate figures. And I think in fairness to Chagas, they are at that at the moment. Um, we, we have now on initial... Do you not think the EPA, no, 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 have, not, think no, the EPA have access no, to No, they haven't, figures? because the sad part in Ireland, we have never done the research. In the line of the herd, we have taken research from other countries. In the line of, basically, um, data, it's, it's Holland and it's other countries. And what we are doing at the moment, and this is factual, that Chagas are doing research. On initial results, the, the, okay. a, a cow is actually 20% less emissions on initial results from the, okay. the, than what they were. And that's good. D there is, there is also technologies, and I, I think it would do anyone any good to go down to like, the Johnstown Castle and go to the research farms where there is a huge amount of work going on on how we will reduce emissions. Yeah, I know, but there's, there's all about sort of fingers crossed, isn't it? Well, Ho it's not about fingers crossed. There, are, there is data. It's not and an actual the, plan. And the, well, actual, there's, there's an additive at the moment being used in Europe that is reducing emissions. So these are the things that's coming on screen. Okay, John Gibbons, can I respond? Again, that, that, that's all fine. And of course, we want to improve our technology. Of course, we want to use different uh, methods that, that reduce emissions and so on. But there's certain things that we just can't get away from. And let me give you one. Our, our cattle herd are producing 40 million tonnes of slurry a year in Ireland. This is an overwhelming problem. It's okay. leading to water pollution on a wide scale. Now, 40 million tonnes, Kira. that's eight tonnes of slurry for every man, woman and child in Ireland. Would you agree with me on one thing? It's not causing water pollution oh, on the areas that we are talking about taking out, the northwest, the west and the southwest. Would you agree with me on that? Well, we can split because here, okay. here you Michael, look, you all you look like. Look okay. Just a very, very... A very yeah. Yeah. And Michael, you're right. You are right that, that there's less nitrate use in yeah. the northwest and yeah. so on. The, okay. problem, right, the area that we're referring to here does, of course, refer to um, dairy intensification. Yeah. We, we understand yeah. that. Yeah. All yeah. right, Michael Fitzmaurice, 
let's say these, these measures were introduced. Let's say the government followed suit and said, yes, this is what we need. Do you not feel that the agriculture sector could be adequately compensated for that? I outlined it earlier, Kira, that if money solves a problem, then it's not a problem. And if you, you can pay a farmer, and some farmers would take. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Different measures or whatever. But always remember this. Rural Ireland is built on communities. Rural Ireland is built on a, a farmer and family. A lot of them in an area that contribute to the local hardware, that contribute to the local, the person that sells the meal, to the butcher, to the school, to everything. And if you take out what's been proposed, because bear in mind, and you know it from where you're from, a lot of farmers, it's 100% of their farm we're talking about. And if that happens, in rewetting, when I talk about that, and if that happens, then you do not have a community, an economy, or an area. So what will the government be paying the butcher, yeah. the shopkeeper, everyone else down the road? Yeah, uh, Neil Richmond, politically, are you really frightened about reports like this and the ask that's going to come off the government to reach these targets? No, because these reports... Aren't, shouldn't be read in a standalone. They come in as a wider process. And go back to one of your earlier points in terms of the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil politicians. We've entered a coalition with the Greens for a very good reason, because we agree that there is a climate emergency, there are clear targets that need to be met. You achieve that by bringing people along, not looking to divide people as much as possible. So but I you also very... accept that people are going to have to take a lot of pain? And we're already seeing that, and that's across every sector. And we want to make sure we're in a position in government where it's not just about the financial, where it is about the community, that we are protecting communities. 
Because crucially, to John's point, if we don't do these measures, we won't have computers, communities. But to Michael's point, we have to do them in a way that keeps communities, rural, suburban and urban, together and achieving a singular goal, which I would like to think we can all agree on because we can't deny that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. All right, I just want to quickly go to our poll tonight because we asked people at home, should we consider calling some of the National Herd to help reach our climate targets? The result of that poll was 79% say no, we shouldn't, and 21% say yes. John? Yeah, I think this isn't uh, really fully understood yet, Kira. right? Okay. Even the term cull, right? Who's culling? I mean, every day, thousands of cattle are killed in meat factories. Is that a cull? That's part of normal process. So language like this suggests some kind of an attack on the livestock sector. It isn't at all. And as I outlined earlier, this is a 30-year process. All right, OK. It means, Kira, to... for the person that is denying cows in a rural area, three of them are gone. They're not viable. That's what it means. And fair play to the people they voted with their feet. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to John Gibbons and to Katrina Morrissey. Neil Richmond and Michael Fitzmaurice are staying with me as we take a look at whether a career in the Gardaí, well, is it still an attractive proposal? You're very welcome back. Well, a new analysis of Garda numbers across the country has shown that one in four Garda stations has less people to tackle crime compared to this time last year. The Irish Independent also found that 42 Garda stations have no full-time officers attached to them. The issue was brought up in the dial earlier today. Uh, and the truth is that your government has overseen a significant depletion in Garda numbers over your decade in power. There simply aren't enough Garda uh, to adequately police some areas. Provided funding for over a thousand uh, Garda to be recruited this year. Um, that will be enough to cover retirements and resignations and will result in an increase in the total number of Garda. Training had been disrupted uh, as a consequence of the restrictions related to COVID. The total number of, of Garda who completed or began training last year was almost 500 and we expect to see some of them coming through in the next few months. Well, Neil Richmond and Michael Fitzmaurice are still with me and I'm also joined by Siobhan Maguire, presenter of the Indo-Daily podcast at independent.ie and I'm joined on Skype this evening by Antoinette Cunningham, General Secretary with the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Siobhan, just to be clear, the 42 Garda stations without somebody you know, attached to them full-time, that's out of an overall number of 560. Exactly, Kira. yeah. So uh, this is this kind of snap shot of the country and, and uh, Garda figures over the last 12 months. It's really interesting because out of 560 Garda stations, 133 have had a decrease. And out of that, you have 42 uh, stations that now don't actually have a designated um, officer. And it, and really, when you break it down, it's, it's a divide between rural and urban. So you have these rural uh, villages that once had a community guard and now lo no longer. So 42 is the figure now, and that's up from 35 in the previous year. Okay, and just to be clear, uh, 326 guard stations, no change in personnel, and 109, that's about 20%, had an actual increase in the number of guard uh, working in a year on year. Overall, though, uh, the numbers working within the force, there has been a drop. 
Oh, significantly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really obvious from these figures that there is a stark problem. Um, uh, total figures uh, in the Guardian at the moment stand at 14,133 and they are the lowest since 2018. And in 2019, it was fine, found that Ireland within Europe had the lowest number of officers per population. So it's a big, big problem. All right. And one of the issues we're hearing, Antoinette, is that there is a recruitment problem that the work of a Gardaí, the career of a Garda Síochána, is no longer seen as being attractive to young people. What is it like, Antoinette, to be a Garda nowadays? Well, I met a colleague the other day who was actually resigning, and he said simply the pressure, the stress and the abuse is just not worth it anymore. And I think that sums up probably the state of morale in the Garda Síochána at the moment. We've turned into a very bureaucratic, administrative type organization. We're tied to our desks for large periods of time. And, and I think to, to go back to something that was said earlier on, uh, in 2018, the Commission on the Future of Policing decided that the new operating policing model was a suitable model as a singular model of policing in Ireland. And for us in AGSI, we've long contested that no model, no singular model is, is suitable to, to police urban and rural Ireland. It's just not possible to police communities in the same way as it is to police cities. Um, you mentioned some of the reasons there why people are resigning from the force. Is that filtering down? Is that making it an unattractive career option for young potential recruits? I think it is, Kira. You know, we had unprecedented resignations last year, 109 resignations, never before happened. I, I listened to the comments of the Taoiseach in, in your lead-in there, and he talks about funding for 1,000 extra Gardaí. Last year there was funding for 800 Gardaí, and 120 Gardaí actually joined. The 500 Gardaí he mentioned had actually joined the year before. So the promise of 1,000... Gardaí is somewhat aspirational in our view. Um, there was a recruitment drive though last year, wasn't there, Antoinette? And I understand 11,000 people applied to join the force. That to me would suggest there still is interest in joining the Gardaí, despite what you're saying there. Well, what happens at the 11,500 figure is uh, people register an interest. That can be parents. It can be mammies and daddies who express an interest on behalf of a son or a daughter. It can be an actual person who wants to apply, but then changes their mind. So what happens is 11,500 register an interest, 6,500 apply. And then, of course, there's a, there's a process of elimination through various stages as you move through the process. All right, let me just put this to uh, Neil Richmond, who's here with me in studio. There seems to be two issues then uh, recruitment into the Guard seems to be a difficulty, and then retention is a difficulty. So first of all, the retention issue. Um, Antoinette's saying 109 resignations, they've never had it before in the force. Do you accept that as indicative of low morale and a problem with how policing is being carried out in this country? I think it's unquestionable that morale within the force is not where we'd like it to be. I think um, the second point, you could argue a bit more, I think the 109 is very disappointing today, is 1% of the force uh, overall, but resignation of that number shouldn't be happening and certainly what the government wants to see is deeping into why those resignations are happening and that's why exit interviews are starting with people who are leaving the force not necessarily those who are retiring but those who are resigning and that's where to look at is it simply about 
paying conditions or is it about resources? Is it the fact that we need to provide our Gardaí with more equipment, such as the new body-worn cameras? Is it about vehicles? Is it about rostering, which has definitely been controversial, and how much of that can be impacted by government, and how much is that then down to Gardaí management in terms of the commissioner? Something we're being very proactive on. Also, we have to look at sentencing for, say, myself and Antoinette would have worked quite closely, minimum, mandatory minimum sentences for those who assault a Gardaí, sadly, which the number of assaults have gone up steadily over the last three or four years, which is a real worry. But we have to go back, when we talk about comparing it to last year, we have 10% more Gardaí than we did in 2015. We have a colossal addition over nearly 800 <coughs> civilian staff working with Angarda Shiakona who are allowing the Gardaí that are there to get away from their desks a lot more. And we want to see a lot more of that being rolled out. Okay, we've had a, an email in from a viewer, I presume it is a Gardaí watching this evening, saying, wake up, pay a decent wage. That's the problem, the crux of it. And certainly if that's something, that, then we can go into the public pay talks and work out. But it can't just be about the wage because the wage goes to one extent if you're a Dublin-based guard and what impact does it have in, in Galway or somewhere like that. But we have had engagement with Gardaí who say it's not just the wage. And that is why we want genuine exit interviews as well as working with AGSI and the other Garda representative bodies to work through this because we're prepared to put the money into it in terms of resources and, and in terms of recruitment. Okay, in, term, in terms of the pay within the Garda, where's the format for negotiating that? Well, it's like everything. It's with the public pay sector agreement of which um, there's another review within another year, but we have to look at... So we use um, time. Okay, I just want to go, sorry to cut across you, Neil, but I do want to look yeah. at the other issue, which is the recruitment, getting the numbers into um, the training college. Two years in a row now, there have been numbers set out in the budget and they've failed to materialise. And Labour put out a you know, press statement today and they said, Fine Gael has actually gone soft on crime you are letting down rural communities. People don't feel safe anymore. Well, I think that's hyperbole. And I think you have to remember there was Fine Gael and Labour and government who reopened Templemore together. And we haven't gone soft. And that's why we look at the legislation that's been passed in terms of more resources right. for the Gardaí. And the money is increasing every year. But we do have to work with the Garda authorities and the representative bodies to get more people into the force. OK, is there adequate policing where you are, Michael um, Fitzmaurice? Uh, in... In my opinion, the first thing we need to do is pay tribute to the guards, especially in the rural stations. Unfortunately, a lot of those rural stations are closed at night. Um, I would have always said, and it's ironic, um, it has been spoken about that we had more guards now than we had in 2015. I remember many years ago in most small towns, there was two guards and there was a sergeant. I, nowadays, that's gone down to a guard during the day. But the big problem I see in the rural areas, especially for rural crimes, um, that at night you could get a 20 or 30 mile air radius, that there wouldn't be a police car available very quickly if there was a robbery or something. Um, and on top of that, when you talk about young guards and look at, we speak to them day in, day out, um, there is a difficulty. They will all tell you that it's, it's not as attractive a job as they felt it was years ago. Has it become, do you think, too bureaucratic, which is one of the points I think that Antoinette well, and, was making and, there? In fairness to Antoinette, um, what she said there, I, I think is 100% right. It is, there is more paperwork, obviously, and I know that you need a certain amount of paperwork, but it seems to be gone into more paperwork. It also, um, look at people as well around the country, we see it at the Dáil at times, um, you know, there's a, a guards take a lot of abuse nowadays, which is not acceptable, to yeah. be quite frank about it. But on top of that, um, they are finding it hard, the younger guards, to live or get accommodation in a lot of areas. And it's not working out for them. Put it this way, if you go working on a building site, um, driving a machine or doing something, you'll get a bigger wage than a guard will get. So 
Which will they do? Okay, and Antoinette, just to go back to you, one of the, the points um, that Michael brought up was, was abuse, I suppose, that our Gardaí are facing at the moment, um, as well as a lot of sort of increased interference and scrutiny um, from members of the public, I suppose, about how they, they do their job. Is that impacting on Gardaí? I think it's not very nice to have a mobile phone shoved into your face every time you do a routine thing like a checkpoint. And then what happens then is uploaded onto some social media platform, distorted, often used to make a mockery of the Gardaí. And seemingly members are actually powerless to do anything, anything about it. To be affected in your Not job by that, but to be affected. Antoinette, what would make it more attractive? Because you're, you're painting a pretty bleak picture of life as a guard in this country at this point. Yeah, and I think nobody wants to talk down the job that they actually do. And we're very proud of the Garda organisation. We're very proud of the job that we do. But there are very challenging obstacles in place for the Garda at the, at the current time. We have issues around recruitment. We have issues around retention. We have issues around pensions. We have issues around pay. And we certainly have issues around rosters, which is causing huge internal strife within the organisation itself. Some more politicians need to start talking to staff associations because I don't hear them talking to us. All right, I just want to put that back to you, Neil Richmond. I mean, you say, look, we're open, we're having conversations. Antonette says, no, you're not. They don't feel like they're being listened to by, by Fine Gael, by this government. I think as an individual TD, I've had more meetings with AGSI and the GRA over the last couple of years and have co-sponsored legislation with the GRA myself. OK, so that's um, you individually, but they're talking about the government. And I've worked with colleagues and I've worked wider with government, Neil. Minister McEntee before she went to maternity leave to put forward that legislation. But Antoinette, a very interesting point there, and it's a true one in relation to the filming of our Gardaí. So where can we work with the representative bodies, and I'll have a meeting with her in the next week if she wants, to talk about how do we address that? How oh, do we right. use the online media and safety regulation bill that came into force in December to protect our Gardaí? Because okay. that's what we want so to do. So you are listening. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to uh, Michael Fitzmaurice and to Neil Richmond. Siobhan is going to be staying with me as we take a look at um, rising health insurance costs. Actually, Neil Richmond is staying with me. Um, we're going to be asking, is it going to become too expensive for consumers to keep their health insurance? You're very welcome back. Well, anyone with health insurance will be seeing another hit in their pocket in the next few months. Rates with Leia Healthcare, VHI and Irish Life Health have all been hiked up. So what should consumers do? Well, I'm joined once again by Neil Richmond, who did stay with me, and by uh, Siobhan Maguire. Siobhan, I'm going to come to you first, because I sort of think in the midst of the cost of living crisis, when we've seen just hikes everywhere, that this has almost gone under the radar a bit, hasn't it? It has, yeah. And that's because we had a very quiet couple of years over COVID, uh, where we didn't see price increases. And there was a very good reason for that. We weren't using our health insurance to the full. There weren't claims going in. Therefore, the health insurance couldn't justify putting up the price. So uh, what we have now is Irish life health since January increasing. Uh, VHI coming in with a 4.8% increase from March and then Leia 4.4% um, from April. And for those of us with health insurance, and that's about 47.5% of the population, that can mean an increase of anywhere between 60 and 250 euros per annum. What is their justification for this at this point? Oh, inflation, 
Inflation, Kira, and this is what the, it's so many uh, companies, sectors in the market turn to when they have to raise the price because the claims haven't got any bigger. Mm. Yes, they might be a little bit bigger on, on 2020 and 2021 when, as I explained, we couldn't use our health insurance. But that's not a, a justification for putting the prices up now. And I have to say my immediate uh, question was going to be, you've just mentioned three uh, health providers there that have increased the prices. Are there others? But there's not. There's not. No, it's a teeny tiny little market. We have so little uh, in terms of options when it comes to our health insurance. And actually, the insurers will then put it back on the consumer and say, well, absolutely not, because you've got over 300 uh, plans to choose from. So, you know, really, it's, you know, it's there for the picking. Um, that's a very convoluted uh, uh, array of choice uh, when everything is just full of jargon and everything seems really, really difficult to try and get your head around when you're looking for health insurance. And there will be a perception, I think, that where there's a lack of choice, prices will always be high. Is that the case here? Yes, yeah, so the average, you're looking at an average price of around 1300 for um, a single person. And that's kind of on par with other, some other European countries. Now, the families, uh, say two parents and, and two kids, it should be averaging around 1800 If it's over that, you really need to be changing your, your health plan. And again, that's where the confusion comes in, Kira, because, you know, you're, you're, you're handed or, you know, you're, or you're, you're guided to a website where you you're told to look up these, these web plans that may as well be written in Chinese because they mean very little unless you have a, a medical background a lot of the time. Yeah, and I always think when it comes to changing something, particularly like your health insurance, there's a lot of fear, isn't there, about getting on new policy and perhaps you know losing some of the entitlements that you built up under your old policy. There's fear there. Absolutely, yeah. And and it's like everything else. It's like the, the motor industry. But people stick with the one provider because they think, well, that isn't that the safest thing to do? Won't I be, you know, uh, rewarded for doing this? Absolutely not. No, they, I mean, it's wonderful for the companies if you stay put and you stay with them for 10 years on a plan that is 10 years old and that hasn't changed, is costing you a small fortune. They're not going to reach out and say, listen, you know, you could be saving a hell of a lot of money by shopping around. And are we still as poor even in this cost of living crisis, at shopping around as we always were? Yeah. I've seen some improvement there. I, there, is a, there is an improvement, but again, it's only three providers that you can shop around with. I mean, my own, uh, from my own choice on health insurance, I, I'm actually just down to two providers because uh, one of them doesn't actually provide what I need in terms of an outpatient service. So, you know, it's, it's a very sm it's slim pickings. Um, can these hikes, do you think, Neil, can they be justified based on inflation, as Siobhan said? Uh, on inflation alone, not. But I think it, it should be noted that it isn't a universal hike. Not every plan is going up. And as Siobhan mentioned, there's 320 plan, plans out there. And the head of health insurance, the health insurance authority did say that over a million people are missing out on savings because they're not uh, going for plans. So that is one option. Um, in terms of the choice of providers, we do have three providers in this country we're not comparable to other markets. Some markets in Europe have no providers, some have 10. You look at the US where there's loads of providers, but the 
rate is massive and if you don't have health insurance you're fed to the wolves unless you have Medicare or Medicaid. So yeah, I, think... I suppose some European countries have no private health insurance because they don't necessarily have a private health system the way we do. Or they don't, they simply, don't have the, the public they, private They don't system. simply allow a private health system and maybe that's through a need or through a political design. That doesn't necessarily mean their health service is any better or any worse because we actually have a steadily improving uh, public health service and we have a situation in the country where 47.3% of people choose to have private health insurance. I'm one of them and I did get a saving when I amalgamated with my wife and my children and that's one way to do it. But I think we do have to go more generally into insurance and look why premiums are going up. We did a lot of work to bring down car insurance premiums over the last couple of years through legislation. There are still a couple of sectors uh, in the entertainment area where we haven't been able to get them down, but we have to look at that for health insurance as well. Um, you mentioned there that, look, the public sector is improving, you say, although I think a lot of people would dispute that. Do you think then people should be more confident about cancelling their private health insurance? It's complete personal choice. As I said, I've made a choice. We have a system in this in this state where you have the option to have public or private. You don't have to have private. It is a choice. And yes, if you look at the indicators in health system, despite challenges, we are having as I said, people living longer, we're having more doctors coming out, more nurses coming out, and we are seeing certain areas and certain treatments going up way above the would, European would average. Would you be concerned that this will be seen as a luxury? Because let's be honest here, the government needs people to have private health insurance in this country because if they didn't, the pressure on the public system would be impossible for it to deal with. Well, we have a system in this country where we have a, both a public and private system, and that's by design. But would you but be concerned with people, choice? given the cost of living crisis, cancelling their private health insurance? Would you encourage people to keep it? I think if people need it, they should keep it. But there are a lot of other measures in not related to this in relation to cost of living measures coming next week that we hope will definitely lessen the sting for many people in every walk of life. Okay, very quickly, Siobhan, still shop around, there's still value? Absolutely, shop around. And I don't think people have the choice when it comes to health insurance. If you've got an illness, you need it. All right, look, it would leave it there. But my thanks to Neil and to Siobhan and all my guests this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight at the MTV. From all of us here, good night. Happy Valentine's.